This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very good afternoon to you. Today and after half past 12, we'll talk about how Western Australia's commercial fishing industry has put forward its own proposal for no-take marine sanctuary areas as part of the new South Coast Marine Park. We'll catch up with the CEO of WAFIC, Daryl Hockey. Also today, and we've been talking about this over the last couple of days, some sort of storms, some thunderstorm activity in parts of the Southwest Land Division. Uh, after the cross to the Bureau today, we'll head to Cojanup where there was a, well, a little storm over Cojanup Way and we'll meet one farmer whose valuable canola has been wiped out, well, in some paddocks anyway. We'll talk about that after half past 12 today, six past 12 here on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. A large-scale Western Australian pastoral land portfolio is set to move from Chinese to Canadian ownership. The 2.9 million hectare aggregation made up of Yugawala Pastoral Company and Argyle Cattle Company spanning WA's Kimberley region has been signed in an agreement to acquire by Alberta Investment Management Corporation or AIMCO for more than $300 million. The agreement is subject to regulatory approvals and assessment by the Foreign Investment Review Board. As part of the agreement, AIMCO will retain Hayden and Jane Sale as managers of the Kimberley Cattle Portfolio. And Hayden says it's a good outcome with plenty of opportunities. We are very happy with the the eventual buyer. Um, We think they're a really good fit for the company. Um, They're already established in agriculture in Australia. Uh, uh, they're bringing in substantial funds uh, that will help us move forward to further develop the business in the irrigation area and the and the, uh, the infrastructure on the stations. Uh, and all of the part of the deal was for them to actually buy it was all of the staff and the management was to remain in place uh, because they're not they're a um, they're not a hands-on manager as such. They would like us and all the people that work with us to stay and keep managing it. So in the end, I thought a very good result. So yourself and your wife Jane are still managing the whole portfolio. Can you tell me what's going to change now that you've got a, a new owner? Uh, well, new owner brings um, a bit of fresh vision, a bit of fresh enthusiasm, and uh, and importantly with these things, fresh capital. So um, you know we've had a very good run with the old owners. They sort of had their time. They were looking to exit, but when people were looking to exit, they generally sort of pull up on all those things. Uh, and and uh, we've had a period of a year or two in sort of limbo wondering whether we were selling or not selling uh, and to have a new direction is fantastic so these guys are coming in uh, we're very much focused on the long term um, you know they're treating this as a 20 plus year investment uh, their structure of how they work allows them to do that uh, and then they have the funding available to to drive the forward business where that where it needs that capital development so uh, and and importantly all the people that work in it uh, remain in it and they see that as a pretty critical side of it to keep that experience um, and the overall management of that business and the people that will work together to achieve that uh, together it's part of the deal so yeah we, we um, yeah we're extremely happy with the, with the people coming in and and the result for everyone involved and speaking to Danny Thomas as senior director of 
Lord when this sale was advertised, a significant selling point was the the infrastructure around water across all of the stations and, and leases. Can you tell me, especially looking at Shamrock Station, we know you've got a number of centre pivots set up there. Is there plans to continue expanding that? Yeah, so Shamrock is... Um uh, Samrock is basically partially developed. There's a there's a approvals for uh, a water license and uh, and development of 12 40 to 45 hectare centre pivots, so sort of 480 to 500 hectare development under irrigation um, using water from the Broome Sandstone Aquifer. So there was a huge, very long, very intensive licensing process that went around that. It took us roughly about five years to get that sorted with hydrogeological reports and environmental impact reports and all those things uh, that needed to be done and we got there and, and now that plays a very big part in the strategy of where the business heads. So that allows us to grow fodder to feed in a feed yard to uh, to further value add cattle. So we're not quite as reliant on uh, the one market, uh, one or two markets that we currently have. We can also produce cattle for the domestic slaughter market uh, and then pivot to other markets if we need to. So that's been a big key focus for us and the new the new uh, the new buyers coming in have, have really saw that as a as a as a, a really big upside for the business. So they're they're very much behind getting that development done. Uh, so hopefully next year we'll kick off and get that done. Are you looking to expand any irrigated fodder crops on any of the other leases? No, the, the, the irrigation is based at Shamrock because that's where the licensing is and, and that's where the, the, the irrigatable quantities of water are under the ground there. The other leases uh, are basically access to stock water, but it's also one of their big advantages. All across the leases, we've got good water. Uh, we've spent many years right back to when uh, Jane and I first came here in, in the 2007, developing that water um, to provide more stock water points to spread cattle across country and effectively run more cattle and, and also um, uh, reduce the impact on the on your country by spreading those cattle across it on the range. So, yeah, water plays a key part, water for the stock and then water for uh, in the future irrigation for sure. It's one of the great benefits of the Kimberley. And I'm assume you're, assuming that you're standing at home at the moment. How's everything looking when you're looking out your window? What's the season been like for you? Oh, it's been a very, very challenging season. Um, just starting off with floods, which knocked out the bridge. Uh, it didn't overly affect us because we're a bit more upstream, but for our marketing process and our inputs we need into absolute chaos and then, uh, then we had uh, issues with the Indonesian market with maybe um, skin disease so we had we have had some kind of marketing issues this year that we had to deal with and then we've had to top it all off a, uh, a huge fire season so probably one of the most challenging seasons I've seen in the Kimberley um, and in amongst that uh, obviously having a sale process going on so so it's, uh, I'll be pretty happy to get to Christmas this year and and, uh, and knock off because it's been a tough year. But it, 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 the fires have really impacted us. But we are starting to get some storms now around the traps that have that have uh, is helping that. I wouldn't say we're out of the out of the woods entirely, but we've had a little bit of relief. So hopefully that keeps coming. A bit of a break to sit back and put your feet up and watch those wet season storms roll in. I'm and sorry. Maybe yeah, it's got to, it's got to keep coming. We haven't got it yet, but it's got to keep coming. But the Kimberley is pretty good like that. We, you know, we we've lost some Kimberley areas of country, uh, but we're not uh, losing too much sleep because we've we've had some storms and we've also because of the, the scale of the aggregation, we've been able to move cattle around between other properties where that weren't affected. Um, so we haven't had to make any dramatic moves to destock. We've just been working a bit later this year to relocate cattle to different areas, so we're managing at the moment. 
Manager of Yugawala Cattle Company and Argyle Cattle Company, Hayden Sales, speaking to Alice Marshall about the recent sale of the full 2.9 million hectare aggregation of leases to Canadian Alberta Investment Management Corporation for the grand total, well, of more than $300 million. 13 past 12. Well, the interest in WA pastoral and farmland stretches right from the north of the state to the south, with today's West reporting Australia's richest person, Gina Reinhart, has spent more than $20 million in the last 18 months buying 2,000 hectares of prime farmland in the state's southwest. The mining magnate isn't the only one with an eye on WA's farming properties. Hugh Ness is director of Ray White Rural WA and has been working in the rural real estate business since 1988. Hugh, what's the level of interest in WA farmland today? I think the the level of interest is coming from a lot of different sectors that actually haven't been in our market before. The breadth of buyers is is quite unique and, and they range from... You know, your investment funds out of sort of North America and Europe looking to buy traditional agricultural properties to, you know, your carbon, your environmental offsets, the pine plantations. Um, It's a very wide market that we're having to deal with and it's something that's actually fairly unique, I suspect. We haven't seen it ever before. What's driving it, do you think, Hugh? No, there's a few things driving it. Obviously, the, the environmental requirements that the government are putting in place and the world are putting in place are actually driving the market for, for carbon um, sequestration. They're driving the market for, you know, for pine plantations. The government are also pushing or the government are buying land to buy, build their own or plant their own, but there are also incentives out there for private individuals to actually do the same because we apparently have a shortage of pine logs and I suspect that's probably the case because they've burnt a couple of, they've burnt a fair few of them over recent years accidentally. So I suppose that that's one element that that's happening in there in terms of you know where that demand is coming from. You, you've got other issues, I suppose. You've got what's happening around the world um, is probably turning the spotlight on a, on Australia a bit more than it has been, and saying, "Listen, it, it is a very safe place to invest. Farming is is reliable within reason, considering rain is the the one thing that you need and it's the one thing you don't control. But the rest of it is." Is reliable. We're in a uh, we're in a very safe political environment, and I think the world is sort of looking around, thinking, "Well, listen, if I'm going to invest some money into agriculture, Australia is a, a very good spot to do it." So, how, just to make that comparison, then, I mean, the the interest in the traditional sort of wheat, sheep, cattle properties mm-hmm. compared to, say, that environmental interest with the, I don't know, carbon offsets or mm-hmm. or wind whatever farms yep. or whatever yep. it is. Is that mm-hmm. even or is there more interest coming from that environmental side in terms of expansions in that area? Oh, no, I, I suspect that the, the large percentage is actually into the traditional farming zone, into your, your wheat and sheep type properties. But what we're seeing is that we're seeing some very large corporations with, with deep pockets investing into that carbon I'll call it environmental carbon sector. And that goes, flows through to the, a place we sold north of Mullawa sort of six, eight months ago for you know, early 20 millions. And that's going to turn into some form of environmental um, property. I think Woodside bought one at uh, just north of Perth at Lancelin as well, paid sort of around that 20 million as well. 
uh, and that's part of their program to to drive their environmental side of their business. So it's and they're just a, they're just a couple. There is a lot more behind that scene as well that are um, pushing or looking for opportunities to do things. And I suppose what I've got to add to this is that the properties that they're tending to buy are not properties that that traditional farmers would be overly enthusiastic about buying themselves. They tend to be right on the fringe, you know, questionable rainfall, questionable soil types. So they're not, as much as they're buying land, they're not really taking it the prime, in fact, they can't afford to buy the prime, the prime agricultural country because the farmers will pay too, pay more than they will. So you're still seeing that sort of the farmers getting bigger and buying the farm next door or in the neighbourhood? Very much so, yeah. And, that, and they're, the, they're competing against the, the corporates. In a lot of instances, the, the, the corporates, corporates have regular regulatory hurdles they have to jump over. Your local family farm doesn't have the same issues. So they can act and act unconditionally a lot quicker. So, in terms of not having to go through like the foreign investment review board or something, yep. yeah. and, and just and, and just basically due diligence or get board approval. Um, if you're dealing with the next door neighbour, next door neighbour can make you a cash unconditional offer. It can be all over in, in an hour, providing they've got the the financial horsepower. They've got the advantage. But you are seeing that. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And which areas yeah. in particular? Where's it hot at the moment? Oh, oh, listen, it's all over the state. It doesn't alter too much. Um, once you get into the sort of the higher rainfall areas, and I suppose I'm talking probably the Great Southern, the Great Southern's an area where they sort of can't really get a foothold for, for varying reasons. One, the property's not big enough for them because they're, you know, their sort of model is suggesting they probably need four or 5,000 hectares before they can sort of set up a base, and that's a, that's a corporate enterprise. There's not those opportunities in the Great Southern within reason. And the, and the f- local farmers pay probably more than the corporates want to do, but in, in saying that, XL Farming bought uh, the big property at Cogenup, and there are also other large corporate farmers inside the Great Southern, but they've been there for a long period of time, and when I mean a long period of time, they've been there for 30 years or more. And what's this doing to prices then, historically well, speaking? Where where are, we, where are we at? Well, listen, we've seen a big jump in the last three years, so the, the price of land, in, and I'll just say the Great Southern because it's where I come from, but, you know... The price of land in the Great Southern, sort of Arthur River, Cogenut, Williams, has doubled in the last three years. So we're at a level now that we've never seen before. And then you've got you've got a couple of things at play there. You've got a, a scarcity of listings and and a fairly extensive pool of buyers interested in procuring a bit more land. The livestock side of things is sort of throwing a bit of water on it within reason. With where prices if, are at at the moment for sheep and cattle? Oh, yeah, with where, where, the, where those prices are, it's taken some of the people out of the marketplace. But um, for those people that don't have sheep and only have machinery, it's not really that big an issue for them. So where's it all going? If you're, if you're looking forward five, ten years, <laughs> what, where, how does this all unfold, Hugh? I, I think it'll just be, it'll be a bit the same going forward. The corporates will be trying to get bigger. The local farmers will be wanting to get bigger. It'll be just a... A continuation. Um, you know, prices obviously have to settle at some stage. Like, there, there is some laws of economics that apply to these things. So it's hard to estimate, though, or hard to imagine that the prices would jump, you know, double again in the next three years because the simple fact of the matter is you've got to make money off it. So I don't see that happening. But, I, I you know, when you've got a lot of money coming in from offshore and, and a lot of it is, I suppose, it's super fun money. So it's not, there's not borrowings attached to that. Um, whereas your local farmers have to probably borrow it. So there, there is a 
there is some restrictions about their about what they can and can't pay. And are you? I mean, are people knocking on people's doors, going, "Hey, are you interested in selling?" Is is that going oh. on, or people are thinking, "Oh, it's it's the market's good. I'll get out and you know come and see a real estate agent." How's that working? Oh, listen, it's a bit of all of that. Um, oh, listen, we've we've knocked on doors for thirty five years. It's the only way you really do this business is knocking on doors and you know going to sheep sales and clearing sales and all those types of things to talk to people. A lot of people have this a, a time frame in their in in front of them about when they're probably going to exit the industry, depending on whether they've got kids that might want to take the farm over. They've got a window and they start talking to us probably a few years before that. Notwithstanding that, um, if prices kick really quickly, which they have done, some people bring forward their decision. You know, a, a modest farm in the Great Southern is now worth an awful lot of money. Hugh, good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, Belinda. Bye. Hugh Ness, he's a director of Ray White Rural WA. 22 past 12. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. And stay right there because in a few moments' time we'll get an update from the newsroom for you, go through the headlines and then check the weather conditions around Western Australia. Just a heads up too, no Mount Barker cattle sale uh, well, today, well, it is on today, but we're not going to report on it. It's gone into its two-day format. So the complete wrap of the yarding and the prices are tomorrow here on the Country Hour. 22 past 12. It is not always easy growing up with a disability in rural Australia. But a young man from a cattle property near Charters Towers in North Queensland has had some success in the world of competitive athletics. And as Lucy Cooper found out, he's made some friends along the way. Sam LaFer loves to run. And growing up on a remote cattle property, he's had plenty of space to practice. I've always thrown him outside and luckily, you know, you can just go outside, kick a ball for hours. He loves the dogs, so he runs around with the dogs. And although he had three older siblings, Sam's mum, Teresa, did worry about how he would engage with the outside world, a challenge for most teenagers with Down syndrome. I was driving along and I just thought to myself, I really need to find Sam some peers. You know, he's getting older and everyone needs to be in contact or connected to somebody who has things in common. The answer was to link Sam's passion for running with competitive athletics. A move that took him from the Queensland bush to the international stage. Sam doesn't say no, like he's a real... He's not going to give up. You know, that's a real achievement for, for you know, a little farm boy from Charters Towers to, um, you know, medal over there in France. Living on a rural cattle property gave Sam some opportunities city kids miss out on. He used to, uh, when we ran the dogs, he'd always hop out of the grid and run home <laughs> with the dogs. <laughs> and despite living in rural North Queensland... Shoulder press, let's go, nice and quick. One. Finding a running coach for Sam was surprisingly easy. Over the hurdle, good lad, push high. For 34 years, Leslie Muller has been a coach working in rural Queensland with extraordinary success rates, having seen many of her athletes represent Australia overseas. 
10. Good lad. But she'd never taken on someone like Sam before. I see it as a challenge. At times it can be a little frustrating when I don't understand him, but he's a pretty clever little boy. He will write in the sand to tell me what he's trying to say. Okay, you've got to push with feet. The kids that come from the farm, like Sam, who runs around barefoot, and some of my other athletes, you don't have to condition them as much. But the city kids, yeah, you do. In just 12 months, Sam went from schoolboy to an Australian record holder and then a competitor at an international competition taking part in the Virtus Games in France five months ago. It was absolutely amazing. I was terrified because (laughs) I've never really travelled much before, but even the build-up to going, the whole community got behind Sam. Sam competed in the 100 and 200 metres sprint shot put and long jump, and he walked away proudly with a bronze medal. Fritz. You got this in France? <laughs> was there lots of people? Was Mum screaming? <laughs> Me, Ethan, d- dancing. You and Ethan were dancing? You're supposed to be running. <laughs> 15,000 kilometres away, Sam's coach watched from home in Charters Towers via live stream. I was getting up four o'clock in the morning to do it or staying up late at night because of the time changes. I was very pleased for Sam and it made me realise this is a competitor. The Virtus Games offers athletes with an intellectual impairment the opportunity to compete at an elite level and in some events even qualify for the Paralympics. So Virtus has a global games every four years and it's 11 sports. They were in France and Australia took 114 athletes to Vichy in France to compete in the global games in June this year. And Sam was one of those athletes. Robin Smith is the CEO of Sports Inclusion Australia and wants to spread the word that there are sporting opportunities for people with disabilities. And pull up. Sam is a production of some of the work that's been done before and we hope more athletes like Sam are able to try sport, love sport, train and if they're any good, go to to France or to the Global Games like Sam has done. Running isn't Sam's only passion. His family have also been working with Sam to become independent and financially secure. We're also thinking of you know, something, he, a little business he can start up with himself, whether it's to do with dogs, a dog resort, looking after our pets while people are away on holidays. And then me go move home. You're moving home? What? <laughs> a beautiful, friendly character. What's our future aspirations? Do you want to break the world record? Yes, break yeah. the world record. Break the world record? <laughs> oh, good luck to him. Sam Lafer, he's a schoolboy and an Australian record holder. You can see Sam in action on the farm and on the track just by searching ABC Rural and Sam. And if you do that, it'll make it easy to find Lucy Cooper's online story, ABC Rural and Sam.
to take a look at that story. Uh, we'll get an update from the newsroom shortly and then heading off to Kojanup because there have been a few storms about in the last couple of weeks or so and in some of them quite a bit of damage. One you will hear about shortly is um, some entire paddocks of valuable canola wiped out. So we'll catch up with Matt Bilney shortly here on the Country Hour. First, though, Jonathan Beale is in the studio and he's got an update from the newsroom. Hello. Hello, Belinda. A Perth woman has been remanded in custody after pleading guilty to engaging in conduct that may have harmed her two children. The 43-year-old was originally accused of attempting to murder the girls, but today in the Supreme Court... Prosecutors accepted her guilty plea to downgraded charges. The woman has been held in prison since her arrest in August 2022 and appeared today via video link. She's due to be sentenced next March. An inquiry into public sector misconduct has recommended the Corruption and Crime Commission be given greater powers to respond to allegations of serious misconduct. The report, tabled in Parliament, makes 49 findings and 34 recommendations aimed at improving integrity and transparency. The inquiry found the C does not have a clear education and prevention mandate for misconduct, unlike similar bodies in other jurisdictions. And Henry Kissinger, the Nobel Peace Prize winner and American diplomat who served under two US presidents, has died at the age of 100. He'd been active until the end, attending meetings at the White House, publishing a book on leadership styles and testifying before a Senate committee about the nuclear threat posed by North Korea. In July, he made a surprise visit to Beijing to meet China's president. More news, Belinda, at one o'clock. Thank you so much for the update, Jonathan. It is half past 12. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Great to have you along this afternoon. And shortly, going to be talking about how the... WA commercial fishing industry. So WAFIC has come up with its own proposal for marine sanctuary areas. And this is part of the new South Coast Marine Park. Uh, The idea is they've come up with um, a certain area that should be put aside. And that's due to frustration, I guess, because they just haven't seen the plans for the proposal at this point. So it's decided just to put it out there and come up with its own plan. We'll go through the details of that shortly. First, it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Luke Huntington with you this afternoon. Luke, there's been a few uh, thunderstorm activities over recent days. Any more of that about through the Southwest Land Division? Uh, no, Blender, it's all quietened down now. So, um, yeah, those are uh, those the heavy falls that we got with those thunderstorms over the Great Southern area. Um, they've all cleared it well out to the east of the state now. So, um, we're only expecting showers and thunderstorms um, over the northern and eastern parts of the Kimberley uh, today and just over the eastern south interior. Um, some of those storms over the eastern south interior may have some heavy falls and damaging winds associated with them, but that's sort of, sort of on the border with South Australia there. So, it's sort of in a, in a low population area, so it shouldn't have too much of a significant impact in that area. Um, but the Southwest Land Division, yeah, is pretty much just about all clear today. There's a little bit of cloud along the south coast, but um, precipitation-free uh, during the remainder of today. Um, then as we head into tomorrow, we do see a, a trough developing off the west coast, so the temperatures will start to warm up um, along that west coast area, so um, most of the central west district, sort of um, those mid to high 30 degree temperatures, and even down in 
into the lower west and into parts of the southwest district. We're looking at temperatures warming up into the low uh, to mid 30s. Um, and then the trough moves pretty quick inland um, during later Friday and it actually stays inland. So we're not going to see sort of prolonged days of heat near the west coast. It's going to be all moving through the inland parts of the southwest land division um, over the weekend. So we're looking at temperatures um, pretty hot uh, pretty hot on Saturday through the wheat belt. Uh, temperatures getting close to 40 degrees and into the high 30s uh, through the great southern area. Um, and then on Sunday, uh, we will see temperatures slightly cooling again. Uh, great southern back to temperatures near 30s, wheat belt back into the low to mid uh, 30s there. Um, but uh, we're not expecting any showers or thunderstorms um, over the weekend uh, over the southwest land division. So just those hot temperatures are the main point there. Um, looks like we may get a light shower along the southwest coast there on Saturday and into early Sunday just with a weak cold front, but there's nothing too much um, in that. And then on Monday, uh, there's another weak cold front just brushing the southwest coast, um, anywhere between sort of Bustleton down to Hopeton, southwest of that line may get a light shower, but again, it's going to be less than a millimetre or so, so nothing too significant. And then for northern and eastern parts, Luke, what can you see? Yeah, for northern and eastern parts, um, the, those showers and thunderstorms are going to be confined uh, to the northern and eastern parts of the Kimberley tomorrow. The rest of the northern and eastern parts are going to be um, generally cloud-free tomorrow. Um, and then on Saturday, uh, we'll see those showers and thunderstorms still over the similar area over the Kimberley, over the northern and eastern parts. But we might see some dry thunderstorms extending uh, into parts of the interior, uh, the southeast Pilbara and the far northeastern Gascoyne. And then on Sunday, the showers and thunderstorms retreat back to the Kimberley once again. And on Monday, uh, we're expecting showers and thunderstorms over the Kimberley and then also extending into the interior region. And then the warnings this afternoon. Yep, the only warnings we've got today are some wind wind warnings. Um, actually, we don't have any warnings. Sorry, Belinda, no warnings current. Ah, good. Good to hear. Thank you, Luke. Appreciate that. 25 to 1 here on the Country Hour and just checking the rainfall figures now. So looking back over the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning and checking five mils and over, starting in northern and eastern forecast districts, in the Kimberley, Bedford Downs Airstrip 5, Kachana 6, Nicholson 5, and Warman had 33. And then in the Eucala, Air had 52, and Forest with 5. And moving into the southwest land division, just one, five and over, and that was in the southern coastal region. Talena Downs had 5, but it was over two days. This on the text from Ben in Corrigan, about 230 kilometres east-southeast of Perth. Ben says the forecasting has been so off this harvest We've had two substantial storm rain events this harvest that have been forecast the day of as high base storms with little rain have had over 50 millimetres for November, says Ben. Is that how you see it? Because, I, I mean, very often the Bureau does say there could be these thunderstorms and if you are under one of them, you could get some rain or sometimes significant rain. How do you see it? Let me know. 0448 Text through. Let me know what you're thinking. 24 to 1. Now, as you heard over the last couple of days, properties, particularly around Kojanup, so around 260 kilometres southeast of Perth, have had some heavy rain, and that was on Wednesday in particular. But it sounds like hail wiped out entire paddocks of valuable canola. 
Matt Bilney says his family was about a third of the way through harvest when this week's storms hit. So I was actually mustering sheep on a motorbike for a delivery that we had the following morning. So I got stuck out in it, uh, which wasn't overly pleasant with the, the hail and all the rain that we got in that sort of short period. Most of the damage has been in our canola, which we've got you know, 200 hectares of canola there, and that's we've lost yeah, 100% of that. It's yeah, completely gone. We got uh, 35 mils, which, yeah, was out of the blue. We sort of maybe were expecting one or two, but, yeah, no, it came down pretty hard. So you weren't expecting it. What were you doing? Were you having to shelter under your motorbike? I'm trying to paint a picture in my head. Yeah, look, I was. I had the two dogs there under my feet. They weren't happy. And I luckily had a bit of a roof, so I was getting some protection from the hail and the rain, but I ended up having to ring one of our workers to come and pick me up and sort of rescue me. And at some stage, he rang back to say that it was too wet, he thought, for him to get through. But I didn't really give him an option to turn around. So he came and picked me up and, uh, yeah, we got out of it. So in 40 minutes, you lost 100% of a 200-hectare canola crop? Yeah, we did. It's all insured, but there's not there's no point in, in harvesting any of that. So we will uh, we'll turn the sheep on that and then work out how to manage it after that. That must not be a great feeling, though, when you've put so much time and effort into this year. No, it isn't. It's always nice to be able to harvest, harvest your crops and see how they've done. How widespread, Matt, was this rain and this hail? I think it was pretty localised. I think um, there is some neighbours that, that are close by that have had the same. They've had a fair bit of canola damage. We were actually still harvesting at another property 20 k's away that, that had no rain and no hail, so... It's crazy because, you know, a few days before that, Koji had harvest bands. They then had, you know, because of a lot of wind, you then had some lightning strikes, then you had hail. It's kind of like four seasons in a week. It, it has been, yeah. We had some really bad, really windy days um, earlier on, and which was sort of hard getting some harvest days in. But it's, um, yeah, we definitely weren't expecting this. Apart from the weather on Wednesday, how's the rest of your harvest been? Ah, uh, yeah, it's been good. It's been running smoothly so far, which is always a bonus. We're pretty fortunate. All of that's insured. So it's financially, it's not going to have a have an impact. And there is certainly a lot of people out there that have this season doing it a lot tougher than what we are. Cogenup farmer Matt Bilney speaking to Kate Forrester. And apparently Matt was still, um, he was sending through some updates last night just saying that there were still hailstones in his paddocks from Wednesday's storm. So that's just crazy, isn't it? But he's still aiming to have the harvest done by Christmas time. Good luck with that plan, Matt. It is 21 to 1. Western Australia's commercial fishing industry has put forward its own proposal for no-take marine sanctuary areas, and this is all part of the new South Coast Marine Park. The WA Fishing Industry Council has taken out a full-page advertisement in today's paper proposing the state government locks up 10.7% of the coastline between Bremer Bay and the South Australian border. CEO Daryl Hockey believes this is a world first for commercial fishing operators, suggesting no-take zones. For the South Coast Marine Park, we've um, decided as an industry to come together and offer up some sanctuary zone areas using the knowledge that we've accumulated 
over generations from, from the fishing fraternity. So we've identified some important areas and, and we believe that 10.7% of the proposed South Coast marine parks can be put into sanctuaries for the future. How did you come up with that figure, 10.7%? Well, what we did is we went through and assessed each and every area that had been suggested by DBCA as to its impacts upon the fishing industry, but not only that, as to whether or not there was actually some valued habitat or biodiversity there to protect. So we went through and did a clean evaluation on everything and the fishing community came up with their own um, things. Some things they'd endorsed, some things they adjusted a bit and sometimes we suggested new areas. Once we'd finished that process, we then put the whole plan out for independent evaluation by um, a marine biologist, a, a reputable independent external person who's actually a professor and has a lot of experience in marine parks and we asked him to do a full assessment and he endorsed the plan that we'd come up with. How does that figure, that 10.7%, compare to the draft figures that you may have seen during the negotiation and discussion phases for this marine park of how much water government was looking at taking out as sanctuary areas? Well, they've had a number of different figures and we haven't seen any drafts for the last seven or eight months. So we're not quite sure where they are at the moment. They keep, they keep telling us that they're changing. Some of the um, environmental groups, of course, try to push for 25 or 30%. But of course, if you had that, you'd absolutely devastate the commercial fishing industry, the south coastal communities, the livelihoods of people and the supply of fresh fish to the community. So what we're saying is looking at the, the target that we've got now, we've got something that's a balance and it will still mean that the fishing industry can continue in the future. And I, I should say, by the way, that you look at places like the US, they have around about 3% going into sanctuary areas and some of the marine parks in New Zealand, which are held up as wonderful international examples, sometimes have less than 1%. So um, this, this is what we believe a very generous proposal. It's around about 1,300 square kilometres of water and, and important waters. And and if you want to sort of get a picture in your head of how much that would be, if you look at the playing area of Optus Oval, well, it's that area 60,000 times over. So we believe this is a world first from the fishing industry to come forward. We believe this is a sensible and balanced and rational and scientifically supported proposal. Is it a case that you're tired of waiting for government to put out its proposal so you'll do your own? Well, yes, of course we're tired about it. We've been waiting for such a long time. We developed this proposal, you know, many, many months ago. We informally ran it past government to say this is what our intention was. They said that they were going to release their plans for, for a three or four month public consultation process. That's never come to being. So, so we just felt that it's important to get this out and to allow the community to consider it. And so you've put it informally to government. Are you now taking those formal steps to, to put this in front of them as, as a genuine option? Yeah, absolutely. Over coming days that we, we're going to formally put this to the government and present it to them for their consideration. Some of the feedback might be that, well, you're jumping the gun because the draft maps haven't even gone out for public consultation yet. There'll be plenty of time to revise and review once that consultation has happened, yet you're going and putting out what you say is industry's preferred map area. So are you getting a bit far in front of the process here? Well, a good question, but no, I don't believe we are because this isn't a, a first and final deal that we're putting down. What we want 
is to be able to sit down around the table with other stakeholders. And we're talking about local stakeholders, not these international eco-lobby groups that are running around. Get local government who have been excluded to date, get the fishing community, the, the recreational and commercial fishing communities and other interested parties around the table. And let's sit down there and start working out exactly how we might be able to tweak this even further because you know we're not laying this on the table and saying it's in concrete what we're saying is this is what a really good starting point would be and we want to be involved constructively in the development of a really healthy marine park which is accepted and appreciated by all. Daryl Hockey from the WA Fishing Industry Council speaking to Joe Prendergast. Quarter to one here on the country out what do you make of it do you like the idea of the WA Fishing Industry Council putting forward um, its own plan, basically, for a no-take marine sanctuary area as part of this South Coast Marine Park. Um, Do you like that idea, sort of taking the lead on that and putting it on the table for a discussion? Let me know on text 0448 922 604. Quarter to one. David Gray is president of the Esperance Professional Fishermen's Association. Their members all fish in the area that's going to be affected by the formation of this new South Coast Marine Park. He says they're comfortable with WAFIC's proposed no-take zones. Basically, we we all got together and we looked at what the government was, was putting to us, which was just, it was out of the question. It was It was too much and they hadn't really taken into account any of the information that we as the operators had, had given to them of what we have to retain to you know, stay in business and, and what we can afford to let go. Um, and because we weren't really being listened to enough, we actually got together and, and sort of put together what industry could afford to put towards sanctuaries for the government. And that sort of looked like like it's not, it's not ideal um, for any of us or perfect for any of us, but um, each sort of fishery ends up giving a little bit away, but being able to still, you know, stay in business and, and continue on. How much was industry looking to lose under the draft plans that government put to it? Under the first, well, the last one we've seen, I think it was around 25 or 26%, um, which is a huge amount of area when you look at the park boundary. Like the park goes all the way from Bremer Bay to the South Australian border and encompasses all state water. So under this this proposal, which industry has come up with and you were party to, you would give up 10.7% of the the fishing area. For you as an operator, you're a a pilchard or a sardine fisher, what effect will that have on on your business? Well, the the 10.7%, it'll it'll take out some areas that we we traditionally have fished, but it won't take out our our most productive areas where we get the majority of our fish. Um, it still meets the the goal of what the park planners are trying to achieve um, in terms of the, the, the principles that they run their park by. So it actually meets all the goals that they want to achieve and we don't end up losing our like our livelihoods or our businesses. We're essentially talking about striking a balance between environmental values, uh, socio-economic values and also the values of these individual fishing businesses. You feel like this plan does, but then people listening might think, well, as if you're going to give up your best fishing location. So really, is this going to have the, the level of conservation effect that a sanctuary area is meant to have? Well, I believe it will. And 
I mean, if we start from the start and look at what the, the initial um, sanctuary zones were proposing, I'm still interested to know what those original sanctuary zones were actually there to protect because we've, we've asked um, multiple occasions of um, simple questions like, what is it you're protecting, where is it, and what are you protecting it from? And these are really logical things that I think everyone could understand. And if, if there's an answer to that and they say this is what's special and this is where it is and this is why we're protecting it, I think everybody's happy. I mean, no, no fish is going to say, oh, no, we want to you know, destroy that. That's crazy. But we just haven't had answers to those questions all the way through. And it, it, was, it was sort of um, a recipe for disaster from the beginning because they had an area that they wanted to get into parks and a, t- and a date they wanted it done by. So the whole process has just been a rush to get to this, this end product. Something, something that's going to be permanent, like the marine park, and it's going to be, and it is as big as they're talking and as important as they're talking. Um, I think they should have got their evidence-based research first and then planned the park properly. Because at the moment, they're still going to put sanctuary zones in and then maybe research them later. What do you think government's response to this will be? I couldn't. I couldn't guess what the government's going to do. If it's anything like they've been the last three years, they'll probably just disregard whatever us as stakeholders sort of put forward and and just continue on, which is actually quite sad. David Gray, he's president of the Esperance Professional Fishermen's Association, speaking to Joe Prendergast. 10 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And we did approach the Marine Conservation Society to find out what it thought of these suggested no-take sanctuary zones. And the society directed us to the Pew Charitable Trusts, which calls itself a global independent not-for-profit organisation which tries to influence public policy on social and environmental issues. Pew's Oceans and Rivers manager here in WA is Monique Barker who says it's great the state's commercial fishing industry is acknowledging the important role no-take sanctuary zones play in looking after the environment. But she doubts the zones put forward by WAFIC will be big enough and in the right places to be effective. We have to remember this is an area that is of global significance for its marine values. So when you're talking about designing a marine park, it's really important they are designed with enough sanctuary protection to ensure that the ecosystem can operate in its natural state, providing an insurance policy for the future. So you really do need to get that design right. And the best way to do it is to follow scientific design principles to ensure you get that conservation outcome. And that can happen hand in hand with supporting ongoing commercial and recreational extractive uses and also recognising cultural values. So you take it all into consideration. You just heard David Gray, the Esperance fisherman, saying the first figure they had put to them was closer to 25%. Is that more like the figure that you have been proposing to the state government? So we have been involved in a, in a stakeholder and community process that's been run by the government for the last couple of years. It's been an ongoing process to get everyone's information and input and we fed into it just like the commercial fishing groups and rec fishing groups and all sorts of other interest groups have been involved in. We're not sure what's coming out in in draft maps that is still to come. We are awaiting that as as everyone is naturally 
um, and we will make an assessment there around what what comes out for for a draft plan to then take in three or four months of public feedback to get an outcome. So we we are awaiting design the design of the draft marine park. What are your thoughts on the commercial fishing industry's view that if you make the no-take sanctuary zones bigger than roughly 10%, what they're saying is there's going to be significant implications on local businesses, communities and fresh fish supplies? So on the size of marine sanctuaries, it is important. They do need to be a certain size to, to function to actually have those goals, of those objectives of being an insurance policy. So they need to be large enough and a network of them so there's connectivity within the area. The design of the marine park needs to be done right to take in people, um, user groups and, and, and sector, uh, sector views. That's ongoing and it needs to be done well. You want to identify the high-value conservation areas and you also need to take into all the the uses information and what comes out can be a win-win for all. You see marine parks across Australia that have got a, real, a strong network of marine sanctuaries and they still support sustainable, ongoing, great commercial fishing and recreational fishing. Just look at the Great Barrier Reef or closer to home along the Kimberley Coast or Ningaloo. One thing David Gray was saying he was disappointed with was he feels as though there should have been evidence-based research done first before the state government's departments started drawing up any no-take zones for this marine park. Is that a fair enough criticism? The process to get to draft design started with receiving evidence, um, research from the specialist government agencies, the conservation agency and the fisheries agency to understand so everyone could understand better the uh the makeup of this area from east of Bremer Bay to the South Australian border. Are you saying there has been evidence-based research? We have certainly carried out our own evidence-based research of the values of the region um, and there has been evidence-based research contributed by the other sector advisory groups within the process. So you've had a science sector advisory group, you've got the fishing uh, uh, groups that have put in their research, which I imagine is, which is evidence-based. So, and then you've got the, the specialist government agencies that have provided their information. So a lot of data has gone into to now. And then there's a really important stage still to come to get more local and community data around how they uh, support the, the the draft plan of the maps. Just how powerful is the Pew Charitable Trusts behind the scenes in influencing the state government's Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions as it forms these new marine parks? We are a stakeholder group, just like Wafik is a stakeholder group or the tourism associations are a stakeholder group. So we support marine parks across Australia. We have experience Pew and Save Our Marine Life, supporting marine parks. We work on lots of other things in Australia, but we do have experience in marine parks and we have participated in this process since the government announced that they were exploring a marine park along the south coast. Would you say you're a pretty big player? Well, it's actually interesting. We have participated in meetings from 
the start of this process and from the very first meetings they were alongside the other as you'd expect interest groups so alongside the you know WAFIC recreational fishing bodies government agencies we have participated but just the same simple as that. Monique Barker who is the WA Oceans and Rivers Manager with the Pew Charitable Trusts, speaking to Richard Hudson. Three minutes to one here on the Country Hour, and in response to what we've been talking about with Woffick putting forward its own plan for the marine park on the south coast, um, and in response to what you've just heard from Monique Barker from the Pew Group, Ron says, is this environmentalists doing environmental science or straight, pure environmental science. Thank you for that, Ron. Uh, This from Mucker in Pemberton. You can't dive and spear along most of the south coast because of the crazy numbers of white sharks. Plus, they've just upped the number of herring you can catch because of the abundance. There aren't many boat ramps to launch to access deeper water. The south coast needs minimal closed areas This is another dumb idea from a bunch of uni leftists who don't get out much, according to Mucker. Thank you for that. And also we've been talking about uh, at the start of the hour today how a large WA pastoral and land portfolio is set to move from Chinese to Canadian ownership. So this is the sale of the 2.9 million hectare aggregation so it's made up of Yugawala Pastoral Company and the Argyle Cattle Company. This is in the Kimberley region. And it's been signed in an agreement to acquire by Alberta Investment Management Corporation for more than $300 million. So that's got to go before FERB, of course, but it looks like that could get the go-ahead. And then we spoke about you know further interest, not only in that Kimberley region, but right across the state, really, in farmland, um, in the south of the state and particularly around the great southern area. And we caught up with Hugh Ness from Ray White Rural, who was saying that if you look just in that great southern area, the price of land in the last three years has doubled for that prime agricultural land. So in response to that, uh, this from Jim, I guess the Canadian land grab and comments by Hugh Ness show what governments think of agriculture generally. Not much, in my opinion. One day there will be no such thing as family-owned farming enterprises. And we did talk about all that interest from, you know, the corporates, the investment funds, but also private farmers also interested. But a lot of interest too being driven by environmental issues, sort of the the carbon offsets, the wind farms. So there's a lot of interest at the moment in property around WA. And this too from Phil who says, high rainfall land for grazing is already unviable You'd be lucky to get 4% return on investment. It doesn't make sense, says Phil. And this too to finish up. Uh, I find it fascinating that the Bureau can't predict the weather for two weeks correctly, but they can predict what's going to happen to the climate in 50 years. Hooroo. Good to talk to you today. Time for the news. It is one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.